0: And so, a big round of applause, please, for Phil Schluter of Schluter's Coffee. Well done.
1: Which button do I press? Just that one. Yeah, I've got my notes here. Great, thanks very much. Um, Steve, that's quite an introduction. See if I can live up to that. I feel a bit like Britney Spears at the moment with this, uh, Mic on, uh, this is my title, TIA, has anyone heard the phrase TIA? Too many
0: times. Yes,
1: well Steve says he's heard it too many times. If you've, you've travelled in Africa a fair bit, you have probably heard the phrase TIA. People say TIA when things go wrong, they say this is Africa. TIA generally means your flight's been cancelled again, you've got stuck in the mud or you've had your third puncture of the afternoon and realise you have no more spare tyres and you're bedding down for the night. Uh, Africa can be frustrating. Travel in Africa can be very frustrating. Flights are canceled. I had one canceled on me recently. Uh, your luggage is quite often lost. Um, but unfortunately, TIA sometimes comes to just summarize what a lot of Europeans and a lot of travelers to Africa end up thinking Africa is all about. This, I took off the BBC website uh, a couple of days ago when I was preparing this. This is the news we often see uh, on Africa, uh, both on our TV screens and on the web. I struggle to find anything positive uh, in these news items. It's fairly typical. Uh, you've got rebels, you've got people getting uh, arrested, you've got judicial failings, accusations. Yeah, a lot of bad. There's, there's very little you can find positive even when you uh, look for it. These are the photos we often see. Um, coming out of Africa. This is uh, the recent troubles in Goma. Uh, These are the refugees leaving. Now I'm someone who has uh, grown up in Africa. I grew up in Kenya. I left when I was nine which I uh, recognize is very young but I've been back pretty much every year since I left and I absolutely love going to Africa and this is the Africa I think is presented to us most of the time in the West and I want to tell you that I don't think it's the full story of Africa and tell you that this is the Africa that I know. I don't know how I get this. I'm just gonna see if I can get this video to start. that was uh, in Butembo, not far from Goma. We have an office in Goma, went out not long after the Troubles in December, which you just saw the photos of. This was our experience of going to Butembo. These were the ladies who were hand coffees. We went in, we had a chat to them, and as we left, they came out spontaneously and started dancing and singing in harmony. You get a welcome, that word Karibuni is the Swahili for welcome to, uh, the, in the plural, welcoming visitors, Karibuni Marafiki. Uh, You get a very, very warm welcome whenever you go and visit suppliers in Africa. I challenge many of you uh, to find a roasting community either in Europe or America who will welcome you in quite the same way. Not to say the roasting community does not welcome as well. I'm always challenged. I have four children at home. I have a fairly busy job. When I go to visit uh, many of our suppliers, they pick us up at the airport, they take us out for dinner. They're almost loath to leave you in your room and let you sleep overnight, and they're back there in the morning to look after you the next day. And when they come to uh, visit us, we struggle to find the time between our children and our family and our job to give them uh, the proper welcome that we should. So they really have a great value for people and for relationships, which I think has often been lost uh, in Europe and the West as a whole. So in terms of relationships, Welcome, I think Africa is very much the the first world, and Europe is very much the third world. Africa also has, ah, these are our neighbours in Burundi, I went up recently to a piece of land, we're uh, looking at for a a mill and these were the neighbours who all ran up to see us and were extremely uh, friendly. Africa also has amazing scenery and natural resources. One great thing about traveling in Africa is golden hour. So from about 5 p.m. to 6.15, 6.45, depending on where you are, you have golden hour. Everything around you turns golden. This I took uh, two weeks ago in Tanzania. There are two trucks coming down the road at us, coming uh, in the same direction at us, but they normally find a way around you. I don't know if you can see that photo. That's the view in Mbinga in southern Tanzania. It's absolutely breathtaking. I think my favorite view in Africa is probably the one if you Go down to Western Hadar Galocha. you go over the top of the escarpment um, from Nazareth up to 3,000 meters, and you feel like you're standing on the top of the world. This is taken out my window flying in to Kutumbura recently, and this is a thunderstorm over Goma. but it was a bit like watching a firework display. Very difficult to harness the power that's in a thunderstorm. But what it does tell you is they have plenty of rain in much of Africa. The view that most of my friends who have not been to Africa would have of Africa is a desert land with starving people and very little vegetation. Most of the time when you travel there in coffee regions, you find that it's lush, that it's green, that it has fertile soil, and that wherever you plant anything, it grows very fast. We have small coffee plants who are growing in our office. After two years, they're about this high, and I keep taking photos of uh, six-month-old plants on my uh, travels to show the guy in the office, he's trying to grow them and say, well, I'm sorry, your conditions are not quite as good as the ones we see. These are This is a map I saw recently on a Tanzanian estate. It just has all the resources, natural resources that Africa has. This is just Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, but you have gemstones, mica, copper, diamonds, gold, iron ore, phosphate. It shows where they're placed. It is a continent, absolutely full of natural resources and potential. I must say I'm breaking in this uh, talk, one of my golden rules, one of my pet hates in life is people talking about Africa and presenting it as a, a continent where everything is exactly the same. They'll happily talk about individual countries in Europe or Central America. I've talked about Afghanistan and then they say oh, Africa and they talk about it as a, uh, as a country rather than a continent. Um, It's very much a varied continent with many different countries. For the sake of this talk, I'm breaking uh, my own rules.
0: This is what I'd like to call
1: efficiency. In Burundi, a very hilly country, whenever you get stuck behind a truck going up a hill, this is what you see, there are four or five cyclists hanging on to the back of the truck. They get to the top of the hill. That's a good lean on the corner here. I managed to get in. Um, okay. But it's extremely efficient. At the top, they let go and they go down the hill. I think sometimes we've got far too uh, gone far too far with health and safety um, in Western Europe and lost a lot of the efficiencies we might otherwise have. <laughs> this is hard work. This is the same factory you just saw the ladies singing from. But these guys are carrying bags of coffee that are maybe 80 kilos. I've been in the port of Mombasa seeing people carrying two 60 kilo bags, one on each shoulder, to load containers. I am told by roasting friends that it now costs them six cents a pound to offload coffee in 60 kilo bags in Europe because people in warehouses are not allowed to carry more than 20 kilos each, so you need three people to pick the bag off the top, stick it on the conveyor belt, and three people to pick it off the bottom. That is the reality. Most people we deal with in Africa are willing to work extremely hard. They're willing to put their back into things. Uh, and I think if we're not careful and what's already happening is that while our economies are stagnating, theirs are going to boom. This is a photo taken. We have ladies who do handpicking for us in Goma. They get $2 a day, they get fed at midday and they are extremely happy. And when we go to visit, they say, thank you for being here. We love having a job. We love coming to work. We love working hard. Um, and it's just a very different perspective than you often feel um, is the case, particularly in the current Western economies. Africa has a young population. Whilst we're suffering with a very aging population and the problem of providing for pension funds and working out how we're going to continue to support our aging population, Africa has an extremely young population full of potential and energy. Uh, The yellow section, Africa, uh, the median age has been f- between 40, 14 and 20 years old. If you look at France, UK, we're up to 30, 35 or 35 to 40. We do have uh, an issue in Europe on how we're gonna support people in Africa. The issue is more how to feed the uh, young population. But in the years that come ahead, they will have a huge working efficient population. This is the GDP growth currently in Europe, so uh, all the black countries have had two quarters of shrinking GDP, the other countries' life is not much better, GDP is either flat or growing extremely slowly. These are current GDP growths in African countries, so you can see there six percent, seven percent across the continent, Africa's economies are growing and they are growing very very fast. However, we are still left with the very stark issue. These are my children about four years ago. My eldest two are now a bit older in their best Ethiopian dress. And the other photo is a photo I took in Kochere in Yerga Shefe. And the stark reality is we do live extremely comfortable lives in Europe. And we are dealing with a uh, coffee producing population in Africa who are abundantly smallholders and who do live often in abject poverty. This is the uh, percentage of coffee in each African producing countries. This is, these are our own estimates, which is produced by smallholders. So whereas Brazil produces most of its coffee on large estates or some smaller estates, Africa is really a small holder produced crop. Zimbabwe didn't have any small holders, but it hardly has any coffee. Zambia is very similar. Uh, I heard Mick Wheeler speak recently telling me that uh, the smallholders had a very limited future in the world of coffee. He believes that they will not be producing coffee in 20 years time. I think at least the lesson in Africa is where you don't have smallholders, you don't have a sector uh, which will last the course. If you look at Angola's robusta production, which was about 4 million bags, and Uganda's robusta production, which was the same in the 60s, they both had a civil war. Angola was based on plantations and the production disappeared altogether. Africa, Uh, Uganda was based on smallholders, and the production dipped slightly but has maintained a similar level and carried on. A lot of us here, especially in the specialty industry, are wanting and willing to see development in the producing countries we work with. We're talking about Africa here, so we want to see a change made in Africa. Our mission statement as a company is to transform lives in Africa through commerce in a mutually profitable way. We want to see a real change in lives in Africa, that's what motivates us. But I don't know how often we sit down and actually ask ourselves, what do we really mean by seeing development? What do we really expect? On the left, you have Beni High Street, very little uh, uh, um paved roads in Beni. And on the right, you have Feshi, which is uh, a small, t- beautiful town uh, in Switzerland where I used to live. I want to ask, are we expecting that beni in DR Congo will turn into feshi? If we pay higher prices for coffee, if we support communities, if we see development, is this what we're expecting to happen? And if so, are we expecting it to happen by 2020, or by 2050, or by 2100, or is it gonna take thousands of years? I think we need to ask ourselves these questions because it's, it's a good way to then question what we're trying to do and why we're trying to do it. Having spoken about GDP and shown that African GDP is growing, I think GDP is a very limited way of looking at a society and working out what that society is good at and and seeing the good in a society. JF Kennedy did a fantastic speech on uh, GDP, which I'm about to play, which I think shows how limited GDP is as a figure. Too much and
2: for too long, we seem to have surrendered personal excellence and community value in the mere accumulation material things. Our gross national product now is over 800 billion dollars a year. But that gross national product, if we judge the United States of America by that, that gross national product counts air pollution and cigarette advertising and ambulances to clear our highways of carnage. It counts special locks for our doors and the jails for the people who break them. It counts the destruction of the redwood and the loss of our natural wonder in chaotic sprawl. It counts napalm, and it counts nuclear warheads and armored cars for the police to fight the riots in our cities. It counts Whitman's rifle and Specs Knives and the television programs which glorify violence in order to sell toys to our children. Yet the gross national product does not allow for the health of our children, the quality of their education, or the joy of their play. It does not include the beauty of our poetry, or the strength of our marriages, the intelligence of our public debate, or the integrity of our public officials. It measures neither our wit nor our courage, neither our wisdom nor our learning, neither our compassion nor our devotion to our country. It measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. And it can tell us everything about America, except why we are proud that we are
1: American. So I think that makes a point. Um, I think we're very good at thinking we are the first world and there's other worlds which are second or third. I think in many ways we've become the third world and the things that matter in life have been held on to uh, by other people who are now the first world. So I think uh, We need to remember when we travel, when we look at Africa, this is the Africa that I know and I love, and I get uh, the joy of visiting as part of being in the coffee industry. You'll see that our strap line says the joy of African coffee. It used to say the African coffee people, and we thought, well, that describes very well who we are, but it doesn't describe what we feel about what we do, and we feel that uh, Africa as a continent is the future, has huge potential, the warmth of the people, The beauty of the scenery, the abundance of the natural resources, and the potential of a young population give Africa an amazing future. There's another phrase often used in Africa which was put on as a title here, which is Africa wins again. Again, when your flight is canceled, a lot of people say Africa wins again. We've lost, Africa's won, my flight is no longer there. Well, I think if you cup coffee often as I do, you'll find that Africa wins again on the cupping table. Africa has some of the finest coffees in the world. If you look at the prices paid for good volumes of coffee, I think there's no country like Ethiopia probably in the current market, and Kenya in uh, previous years, and you look at some of the best Rwandan Burundi coffees, Africa has some of the finest coffees. We need as a... Sorry, there's some... uh, Obviously some great barista art going on uh, next to us. We need as a coffee community to engage with Africa, to build a future with Africa, and to make sure that those coffees maintain, uh, are still available to consumers in the years ahead, because without them, we may have a rather boring coffee landscape, which is really not as interesting as it is today. Thank
0: you. Uh, thank you, that, that was uh, super interesting.
3: It was excellent, well done.
0: I kind of hadn't thought about it, but Africa is always seen as kind of, you know, that, that pl- oh and I've done it myself, like, oh not again. And T I A you, you hear lots. That that was really good. Thanks.
3: Um I don't think I've ever heard anybody speak so passionately about Africa. It was really was really, really inspiring. And I think that the the approach you took with it was really uh, really really excellent. I think it's one of the best talks we've ever had on Tamper Tantrum. Great. Um what is okay, so if you could change one thing about how specialty coffees, treating African coffees, like and and how we approach them, how we engage them. Is there is there one thing that kind of you you would love to see change in the coming years?
1: Um, I guess one of my pet hates is traveling um, to Africa. I stood in the clue in Ethiopia once uh, with a group of roasters who then proceeded to tell the yeah. workers in clue that they weren't roasting their coffee properly and they ought to do it like this and like this and like this and they they weren't really doing a proper job and if they did it better, they would come out with better cupping results. They were talking to people who probably tasted 200 lots of Ethiopian coffee a day, and these are people who probably cupped two lots of Ethiopian coffee a day. Um, I think we've learned a lot about the science of coffee, we've had the privilege of some fantastic people, Um, like the people at Lily Cafe who've done research and scientific work on coffee and really improved our knowledge We still have to recognize and go to Africa with a humility that says often they know more than we do and they know more about their own coffee than we do and they know more about the processing and how to produce it than we do. And whilst we may have some things to say, we need to make sure that they're said in the context of we are here to learn from you, not simply to tell you what to do because we think we know how to do it better. Because there's no one better at producing Ethiopian coffee than Ethiopians at the end of the day.
0: I I think I'd go as far as to say as producing coffee. A lot of the Central South American producers look at Africa with like you know jealous green eyes that they would love to learn some of the some of the things that they can do with the coffees in processing um you know that Africa just like leads the way some of the washed coffees from you know from East Africa are just phenomenal that you just can't see anywhere else and a lot of that is down to the skill of people from Ethiopia, Kenya you know that kind of whole region so obviously you, you 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 see all of Africa and There's some places in Africa it's easier to do business than others.
1: Certainly true. Yeah.
0: For me, when I sit down and talk to you and I said about the war stories earlier, I mean, they literally are war stories, some of them, like from DRC and the work you've been doing there. You almost try and make it a little bit harder for yourselves. Is there a reason that you kind of go into those places where nobody else will go?
1: Um... Yeah, I think we have a very clear vision as a company. I've got some of my colleagues I'm looking at here and we share that uh, in the company. I'm very, very lucky to have so many colleagues who share the passion um, that I have. And our company vision is to transform lives in Africa. And we believe that somewhere like DR Congo is a country with immense potential I read a book recently called Blood River about DR Congo. It gives you the history if you like reading books. I highly recommend it. But it describes how the diets in DR Congo are absolutely terrible. The main reason is that anything which is visible above ground can be taken by militia or taken off you. And therefore, they live primarily on root crops, which have a very low calorific value. Now, the population who grow coffee in the Kivu region have suffered from militia groups coming in and out, often paid for by foreign governments who want to get their hands on the resources which are in the region, and the the local population have suffered hugely. Now, as a company, if we're not willing to go into a zone like that and improve their lives through doing coffee, then we should close up and go home. Um, That's our vision. We sat as a, a board and discussed going into DR Congo and investing more money, and we said we may lose all of it. We're going into a zone with a lot of militia groups operating, but we sat and said, Either as a company, we believe in our vision, in which case we should be ready to lose all of it if necessary, or we should actually pack up and go home. Um, So we do deliberately work in countries that other people won't. We're fortunate that there are some people who come in and help us. Um, We have PSI and DEG who give us some co-funding now in that region, and they are willing to help people who are going into these regions, because they also see the need to restart the regions and help them economically. But we go in as well with our eyes open, realizing that the people there have things to teach us. They've been through some extremely difficult circumstances. A lot of the videos I just showed were from DR Congo. You come back quite humbled by the joy these people have uh, after what they've been through, their passion, their willingness to work hard, and their their hope for the future.
0: So you've done this to me before, and you kind of tell, oh, we're doing this. Tell me something that happened on the last trip that everybody here will go, can't happen to a real person like one of these stories that you've gone in somewhere and something's happened that just can only happen in Africa.
1: It can happen in Europe as well I can give you a few stories about that (laughs) but uh, uh, a bit less often. Um, Now we had I think I was telling you this one on the phone so um, we had some coffee missing from a warehouse recently so my colleagues who one of them is here went down recently to to try and find out what had gone on Um, Some pre-finance had been used to pay off a bank loan to keep the company moving and so on. Um, We went to see some stock and they said, look, we've got some of your coffee, don't worry, come and have a look at this uh, stock in a warehouse. So you had the warehouse lady proudly standing there showing us some stock. Uh, One of the two of them just, not deliberately, just walked up onto the stack and sat down while they were having a conversation and the stack gradually tipped over and collapsed to reveal a pile of wooden pallets with coffee bags stacked around it. Um, At which point the warehouse lady fell to her knees and started weeping and then started vomiting everywhere because she was so stressed Um, So that's quite intense that is What happens we have to recognize that in the West we are so blessed we have generally no need for money none of us really Lack any basic things in our lives We are dealing with a commodity which is worth a huge amount of money so it's like asking every employee in your office to suddenly deal with $10 million every single day in cash and never take a dollar bill out and go and buy uh, themselves a Coke in the afternoon. We have to somehow try and recognize we're very easy, uh, very, it's very easy to sit and to say people who steal money in Africa or take a little bit off the side or a little bit of coffee steals and morally stand on a high horse and say, well, that's terrible, it's, it's terrible. I think there's many things in the West which are morally wrong which we perfectly happily accept now because everybody struggles with them a bit so we've made them a bit more sanitized and we say well that's absolutely fine. One of them is not stealing because actually none of us have too much of an issue with stealing because we're so well off we don't really lack for anything so we don't have a motivation to go and steal. So it's very easy to make that a really bad thing to do and get on a moral high horse and say that's terrible and then point to other things which we all take uh, a much less harsh line on Um, Because they're things we actually genuinely struggle with, which are morally wrong, rather than something we don't.
3: So I think um, to me, the potential of African coffee is just incredible. Like when we 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 often get people come to the shop and will ask us to like a a newspaper reporter or somebody opening a coffee shop and it's always we'll give them some nice coffees and then at one point we'll always introduce like, you know, like, a, like a Kenyan or a washed yogurt or something yeah. or a naturally processed Ethiopian of some sort. And those are the ones that always get people, they'll taste it and they'll be like, is this coffee? I was like, yeah. And it, like, the, the flavors that you get from African coffees are, are just blow people away. And we call them, yep. we call them uh, gateway coffees. Because okay. they, they suddenly open the gates to everybody and let them understand h- how wide and varied coffee can be. Whereas like a a sweet Bolivian coffee or El Salvador won't quite do the same thing, won't just bowl somebody off their chair. You know what I mean? So how far along the potential of African coffee do you think we are and and how how much further can we go?
1: I think we can go a long, long way. I always think Ethiopia is the best example of one country with a million flavors in one country. I think they're blessed by having different regions with different flavor profiles and having some sun-dried coffees which have been tested Uh, Recently, but we cupped a table the other day. We cup everything blind in our office, so we we don't Sorry, (laughs) a good barista again. Uh, We don't like to score anything on reputation So we cup everything blind so we don't know what we're cupping and we cupped what I thought was a table of four sun-dried Jäger chefs and one of them turned out to be a Burundi coffee that one of our suppliers said I heard you can get some nice sun-dried coffee. So done a fantastic cherry selection and done a test and it cupped amongst the the top Yergeschef sun-dried coffees and it just shows the potential there is which hasn't been used. That's where I think the, the cross-semination of ideas and so on is very helpful. So I think it's not helpful to walk in and say, you do it terribly, do it like this, but I think sometimes you can say, you know what, we, we saw in another country that this sun-dried system works, why don't you try it here and see if it works here and we'll back you up with a contract that allows you to pay the extra cost. It costs more to produce a good sun-dried coffee than it does, to produce a good washed coffee, and that needs to be reflected in the price if people want them. But I do think there are regions that haven't got coffee in yet, which could have coffees. There are regions which have a lot of coffee. Burundi is another fantastic example of an African country that has enormous potential. I think until six years ago, you could only buy a Burundi as a fully washed AA, a fully washed A, a fully washed B. All the coffee. Uh, They they built their wet mills in the 1980s, Burundi, uh, funded by the World Bank USAID. They had 135 wet mills in the country, all producing different coffees, some at high altitude, some low, some with clean water, some with dirty water, some good management, some poor management. And then they had two enormous dry mills to mill the whole lot. They had an auction system to sell it by bean size. So the logic was we must mill it quickly to find out what bean size we have to put in the next auction, and we'll just pile it all up in a warehouse and stick it through a mill. Now, you had some fantastic coffees. Rwanda Coffee then started to, to do the fully washed coffee in 2004, so they're about 25 years behind. But they did it with the help of a gourmet community, wanted to go and discover what was possible. And they came out with some fast- fantastic coffees. We looked at Burundi. They, 90% of the GDP of Burundi is determined by coffee prices. And we said, if we can get 10% of the coffee and get a 30% premium for it into the gourmet market, the market that buys container loads, there's also a market that will pay much higher premiums for the smaller quantities. But if we can get 10% of that coffee into the premium market that will pay a 30% premium, we can increase the GDP of Burundi by 2%. Obviously, the GDP will go up and down with the world coffee price, but on a long-term basis, increase it by 2%. So we went in and we, we created the map, which some of you may have seen with all the wet mills on, we asked for Samples by wet mill and we cut through the samples and we started sending them out and we were hoping other people would join us Which many people have and now I we tried to sit down and estimate this year And we think about 5% of the coffees are now receiving that 30% premium some of them a little bit more And so there's probably we're probably halfway to the target. We set ourselves um, Six years ago, but it shows there's a country with at the time 30,000 tons of fully washed coffee none of which was ever cut by a gourmet coffee roaster They've got a small crop this year, so there's a bit less, but they had a cupping over here yesterday, Burundi. There weren't many people there, but we should all be cupping as many Burundi coffees as we can, because some fantastic coffees. We've seen, you
0: know, I think we've gone from not having a Burundi until this year, we've had five. um, Well, last year, and it's been amazing. So uh, really opened my eyes. I'm really interested to hear you speak when you talk about um, kind of paying higher prices, looking towards it. But Schluter's is very much a business, too. Um, How do you balance the two together of wanting to pay more, wanting to do more, but also making very strong, conscious business decisions so for the long term you can help the producers? How do you balance that?
1: Yeah, it's a very difficult balance to get. You can ask my colleagues here. Um, We also need to make a profit in order to run a business. We're very happy at the end of the year to pay everybody and have a small profit because a business can then still run. Um, I think we can get very hoodwinked to look around and think that the future's bright if we can make loads and loads of money. I often look around me and look at the people who have loads and loads of money and think most of them are in rehab half the time. And actually we need to stop ourselves sometimes and say, you know what, I'm I'm a businessman, I need to run a business, that means the business needs to make a profit that keeps the bank happy. Um, keeps our creditors happy, they know we can pay them, and on we go. But I don't need to re- run a business that makes a million dollars a year because likely is I'll go and spend a million dollars, buy myself a big house somewhere, then have hassles of do I rent it out, do I not rent it out, do people want to come and stay, end up buying my kids a car when they're 18, and then thinking, well, what, what will that make my kids look like when they grow up and they're 30? And I think. If we're not careful, we get very hoodwinked by the culture we live in, which is very consumerist that says this is all about trying to make as much money as possible. I don't think it is. I think running a business in the right way is good long term sense anyway. Hopefully your reputation is built that you are reliable. We want to be reliable. Um, We want to provide a good quality. We want to own up to mistakes we make when we make them. And I think that's long-term good business sense anyway. We've been around for 155 years. I hope we're around for another 155 years. But I think those decisions, are often just good, good business anyway. But I think we need to, yeah, we need to be willing to run a business that makes a small profit each year, keeps us doing what we do and what we love. Um, but balances that, that with paying a proper price. So we like to, the way I like to look at it is, I like to try and get the best coffees we can find find the person who will pay the most, take a sensible margin and pass the rest back to the the communities that have produced them. That way they're motivated to produce more, then we get more coffee the next year and the people pay us more. Um, I think we had a brief discussion yesterday. I almost put what is a fair margin as a title and thought we could have that as a discussion. It's very hard to know, uh, to have that discussion. It's very hard sometimes. I said to you, you should ask us what price we paid the producers. I think there's a lot of the roasting community who are going out promoting the fact that they are helping producer communities and doing a lot, but can't tell you what those producers got for any of their coffee. Steve was very good. He said, look, Phil, I travel with you in Ethiopia. I can come around and see what the producers got and whether they got a good price, and I have to trust you as my supplier um, that that's what you do. You know the people you work with. Um, But I think transparency in the coffee chain, we shouldn't feel threatened doing our job if we're adding value in the chain, in which case we should not feel threatened by transparency in the chain, that people know what margins we make and uh, how we do things. If they've got an pro- issue with it, they can discuss it with us and we can say, well, we need this margin because we invest this and we do this and we do this. I-, I think transparency in the coffee chain is a good thing. And as much as roasters can go and meet the producers they're working with, talk through what is their cost of production, what is their need of income, be willing to pay that and then work with people who can bring them the coffee, provide the logistics, the finance on a transparent fashion. It takes a lot of the static out of the system. A lot of money is lost in coffee by the fact that when the coffee's produced, they don't know who they're gonna sell it to. If you ask me to go, I was talking to one of the Burundians looking at me now yesterday about his coffee. If you ask me to buy a full container Burundi fully washed coffee today, I have to bid a fairly low price for it. Why, because the coffees that I bought last year that I haven't found a buyer for yet, I'm selling at large discounts to New York in warehouses in Europe and losing a fortune per container. If you ask me then to go and stick my neck out and buy fresh coffee this year, if I don't know where it's going or don't have any idea, I have to push the price down a bit because I have quite a big risk factor, which I don't know how to cover unless I push the price and aim for a higher margin. If I know that I've passed you the sample and you're going to take half the coffee when it arrives and pay a good price, I'm very happy passing all that back to Origin doing it for a very thin margin. And,
0: and that's the way we've very much been working recently yep. is, is looking at pre-shipment samples and working, but working backwards that way before the coffee even yep. leaves agreement green And the price. build a
1: long-term relationship. We have a... a some fantastic buyers in the world. Um, We have one in Canada, one in South Africa. I hesitate to mention names in the industry, but they visit the communities they work with every single year. They work with the same people. They will go down, they will walk to people's houses and sit down with them and ask them how their kids are, how are they getting on at school? Is it different from last year? Have the food prices gone up? What are your challenges? And they will take the time. They have maybe eight supply chains. They will visit every single one every year and they will pay very good prices and premiums, but it's long-term business. We do it for an extremely thin margin, which we couldn't live on if we did, uh, yeah, if if we didn't know where the coffee was going, we would never do it, because it would be, business-wise, it would not make sense. But they come every year, we know they're there to buy the coffee, we know next year they'll probably buy twice as much. I think their customers like the way they operate, and the business has grown fantastically and all the money gets to the farmer. One of them has a requirement on the contract that 65% of the FOB price is received by the farmers in cash. It sounds like a small percentage in many ways. This is for cherry. If you look at the cost of running wet mills in Africa, the cost of dry milling, transport, and all the local costs of managing an operation, that is a very high percentage getting to farmers, and it's probably reality of the sort of percentage of farmers ought to be able to get. I, before I entered the coffee industry at university, I did my dissertation on the percentage of prices, FOB prices getting back to coffee farmers in differing marketing systems across East Africa. And you found in some, they only got 20, 30% of the price. And in the best ones, they were getting 65%. And I think it's a, it's a fairly good target for people to aim for.
0: I think as a company you're fairly unique, as in you sell lots of coffee to big roasters and you've started to work much more in specialty in recent years as well. Yep. What are the challenges and what are the differences of dealing with the two? Well, you know, kind of what are things have you found as you've been dealing with two very different groups of people?
1: Okay, I'm going to tackle before I answer that question the, the concept that anyone who buys a container load isn't specialty. I sat, when we set up the SCAE, there's about 12 of us sitting in a room in London, we had a big battle whether Robusta was specialty or not. Um, So it depends a little bit on your definition of specialty. Someone who comes in and buys a full container of sun-dried Jagerchef grade one at 380 cents is trading specialty coffee in my book, even if they buy a container or two containers. Um, And I think as a company, we have been focused on specialty coffee now for 10 years. Um, I came into a business that the day I started, I think 80% of our turnover was Congolese Robusta. Um, I came in, I was passionate about adding value and cupping coffees and so on, and now 96% of our business is Arabica, um, uh, and it's all from the African continent. We, I don't think we could exist on just the specialty micro-lock business we do. It certainly wouldn't pay our overheads. It wouldn't allow us to go in and invest in DR Congo and Cameroon and Burundi and Rwanda and elsewhere. The the volumes are simply on the specialty lots, not there. Maybe we're not as good as some of our larger competitors who have done it for longer and have a bigger volume going through. Um, we have to sit and question whether that, that business makes good business sense. We love it. It's a lot where our passion lies. And it's very easy to spend all day cupping coffees around the table and playing with the machines. But at the end of the day, we also have to cover our overheads. Um, But I would say the other business is specialty, we're trying to get all of Africa's coffee. We we look at the cup of excellence in Rwanda every year and I do a little calculation in my office. I look at the fully washed coffee that comes out and say how much value have we added to the Rwandan economy by trading fully washed coffee. So we look and we say okay there's 100 containers that go out at a 30 cent premium. Then you look at the value that comes through a cup of excellence competition and the auction afterwards. And the numbers are fairly similar, surprisingly. There's a much lower volume in Cup of Excellence, but the prices they get are fantastic. I then look and say, what's the investment that we can do to trade our fully washed coffee out of Rwanda? And what's the investment required for a Cup of Excellence? I think they're both fantastic and they both need to stay in the the market. The Cup of Excellence requires that 10 people go down and spend a week cupping through lots and then do an auction at the end. It's fantastic the value they get and the value they manage to add, but it does take a one-week investment of 10, 20 people to go and do that. We probably have a a similar investment but spread over a year to add the same value to to the fully washed coffee. So you often see these pyramids, my uncle, John Schluter, if you ever hear him speak, loves his little pyramids. You've got your very high end two bags at an extremely high price, but then you do have a good chunk of coffee Um, which goes into a market that cares about origination, cares about taste profiles, but sells container loads in packets, often through supermarkets, um, that pay a very good price and do support the economies and add a huge amount of uh, value to coffee at origin.
3: It must be really excellent to actually see the benefit that your business does to an actual economy. Like, we talk about Supporting farmers at, at the coffee shop level, but we're we're very much disconnected from what you're talking about. So it's a, it really is inspiring to hear you talk about things like that. And I think um, it makes me feel like that we've got an awful long way to go to even uh, get remotely near what you guys are doing. So it's it's very inspiring to hear. Right. So um,
0: what normally at these kind of events to make them happen, we have to kind of. Can you clap for such and such and, and all that? And we've changed it this time, okay. and we've got questions from people on the for internet. The audience, no, <laughs> no, 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 clapping is necessary. Okay. They do that over there. Okay, that's good. Um, but no, what we do is we've got a sponsored question section from Breville, okay. and uh, we pick out three questions of people watching on the stream while you've been talking that have come into us on email or on, on the, on the, the, the things. So we're hoping it's going to work. It is working. Woo! So. It's as the expert. So, why is African coffee so fruity? And that comes from Judy Shen in the USA. So,
1: right, thanks, Judy. It's good to have someone in America sending us <laughs> questions. That's fantastic. Um, I wouldn't say all African coffee is fruity. I think we have three main flavour profiles we can look out for in African coffee. One is the floral profile. Um, that's mainly an Ethiopian washed coffee profile. It's like the jasmine. Flour has a very similar taste in the cup that comes from the typical varietal. Geisha, I think, came from typical originally. It also has a similar flavor profile. Then you have a berry profile, which is summer fruits, red berries, goes down to you know, cherries and red berries of various sorts. Um, and then you have a fruity profile. The fruity profile often comes in your semi-washed coffees and is due to the, the slight fermentation during the process. It's a difficult one. Some people love it, some people don't like it. So if you do like it, please keep drinking. It's fantastic. I think people ought to drink what they enjoy. That means there's a market for lots of different flavor profiles. The fruity coffee is natural. I think mostly Cameroon coffee has a very natural fruity flavor to it. And the southern Tanzania coffees have a particularly natural fruity flavor. So if that's a flavor you like, I would recommend trying both those coffees.
0: So next question what was your craziest buying experience and that's from david brennan also from usa so your craziest buying experience of getting coffee out of a country
1: i've got joel sitting in front of me probably 2009 we bought some coffee when the market had just come out of the doldrums we traded 40 to 80 cents for a a long time we um had a cameroon cooperative who thought that coffee if you aged it would improve like wine i think it was Partly a thought and partly a necessity the price had gone so long they really didn't want to sell it. But they were sitting on, was it 100 tons of coffee or or more in their warehouse and had been for a very long time. We then went in um, when the prices came up, offered them a price that they thought was okay. They sold us the entire lot. And just as we bought it, I think the market hit 90 cents and jumped 13 cents in an afternoon. At which point our contacts on the ground said, look, other guys are turning up with trucks at this warehouse and offloading coffee. Uh, so Joel, my colleague here, flew down to Douala. We TT'd all the cash into the local bank. He took it all out in cash, stuffed it in his shirt, slept with the cash in his pajamas in a small room up country in Cameroon, and then turned up the next day at the cooperative and counted out the cash and watched the coffee go out. And we, uh, we got all of it by three containers. Um, and fortunately we had three other containers in stock that we managed to ship to our, our customer. But yeah, when the market moves fast, um, cash is king uh, in many countries and you've got to be able to, you know, if you bought something, you've got to be able to cash, pay cash right now. And often we have a, it's a difficult judgment sometimes in our office, recognising the need that pe- people have of cash quickly and recognising that we're running a business that requires certain procedures and getting that balance is, uh, is not always easy.
0: Toldry's war stories are much better than mine. And... What's your favorite growing country? And that's from Mark Glenn, also from USA. So.
1: Mark, that's a very difficult thing to say as someone who loves uh, many African producing countries and has good friends in many. So I'm more likely to make uh, less friends by saying that. I grew up in Kenya. I left there when I was nine. I think a lot of my heart's still in Kenya. My son has it as a middle name. My mother-in-law told all our friends that my son didn't have a middle name because she was too embarrassed to tell them (laughs) that it was Kenya. Um, But he has Kenya as a middle name, which fortunately he likes. I took him out there, he loves it too. So I guess a lot of my heart is in Kenya. Um, Favorite coffee growing community? As I've said, I think Ethiopia has the biggest range of fantastic coffees. So if someone has to start somewhere and learn about African coffee, I would say go to Ethiopia. It's the one country I visit without fail every year. Um, now on my travels, so, um, but I've just come back from Burundi and Tanzania and love them too, so it's difficult to pick one. I
0: I don't know if somebody goes from Kenya to Switzerland to Liverpool. I don't know how that happened. Now you
1: see, Liverpool sits bang in the middle of Kenya and Switzerland. It's a a (laughs) perfect kind of middle ground.
0: Uh, Yeah, no, that's fantastic. Listen, uh, I, I'm, I feel super inspired by your talk. Uh, I think it will go down as one of the Tampa Tantrum great talks that we've had. Thank you so much. A big round of applause, please, for <laughs> Philip Sluter. Thanks.